your copy of God's Word this morning to John chapter 12, uh, continuing to work our way through the gospel. I was thinking this week that uh, I was uh, inclined to pause our study of John until we get a little closer to Easter because we're, as we're approaching Passion Week here. Uh, but I finally concluded we'll just follow it the way the Lord brought it to mind and maybe it'll be preparatory to our Easter uh, celebrations as well. Uh, one of the things that's uh, been really striking to me about this particular passing through the Gospel of John is, is just how often the Lord has brought to mind the idea uh, of seeing uh, and, and more specifically in regards to the nature of seeing. And I, just as a quick review of, of that, you'll remember in chapter 9, this sort of section uh, began to unfold uh, with the disciples coming and Jesus passed by in chapter 9. His disciples saw this man born blind from birth and, and they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And then, of course, Jesus' answer was, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents uh, basically in the indicating that it was not a direct connection between this man's sin or his parents that he's born blind, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, he goes further to say uh, after the incident of healing him, uh, there's sort of a confrontation with the religious leaders there. And in chapter 9, uh, Jesus says this in verse 39, For judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind so we're still dealing with this theme of seeing then he goes through and tells the uh, verse 40 of that same passage the pharisees who were with him heard these things and they said to him we are not blind too are we and jesus in verse 41 responds if you were blind you would have no sin but since you say we see your sin remains and so it seems to me that we're carrying this theme in regards to seeing uh, or the nature or the quality of the seeing uh, that's at work here. In fact, uh, Jesus in this passage later on will speak of having come into this world uh, for judgment. And so he kind of refers back to that. And then the passage that we're looking at uh, today, the Greeks who come come to the disciples and they say to them, we wish to see Jesus. And the interesting thing to me in the dynamic unfolding here is that Jesus, at, at least on the surface, seems not to respond to the request. Uh, he doesn't say, well, of course, bring them by. Bring them to me. After all, the Greeks want to see Jesus and they ought to want to see Jesus, so bring them to me and let them see Jesus. So he doesn't respond in that way at all. In fact, he, he begins to speak in that terms about the hour of the Son of Man having come. So the question in my mind is what, what do the events unfolding here have to do with seeing? Because he seems to be following this theme. There was a man born blind who couldn't see for the very purpose not related to his sin or his parents, but he couldn't see uh, for the very purpose that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus doesn't cure his eyes on the spot. In fact, as I've shared, he makes him almost doubly blind. He takes a blind man and puts clay on his eyes and now he can't see doubly. And then he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So, 
So here he goes, this man born inherently unable to see and now double blind by the mud all caked on his eyes. And he gropes his way, however, to the pool of Siloam and he washes and he's made to see. And of course, uh, Jesus sees him later in the temple and he comes to know Jesus in a very different way. And, And then Jesus makes his statement in regards to why I come into the world so that the blind will see He just demonstrated that with the blind man, but then by the mud on his eyes, I think he demonstrates the second part of that, that that the the seeing may become blind. In other words, I'm acting in such a way as to reveal the key to blindness being sight, or I'm, I'm acting in such a way to reveal that I can give sight to the blind, but in the same acting, I am also establishing that I can uh, I can cause the so-called seeing to be doubly blind. And, and you see it unfolding in the lives of those of the religious leaders because it's an escalating hostility towards Jesus, while at the same time, we read that many are believing. But my question is, what are they seeing? Even those who believe. So we'll pick up in verse 12 of chapter 12. Uh, Just to back up just slightly into verse 9, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a donkey, a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. That's an interesting phrase for them to bring into play here. Uh, That word is cosmos. They they mean the world. I mean, that's a jump in their logic from what's happening because thus far it's been a lot of the Jews and perhaps there were some of other nationalities who had come up for the feast, but they used the word cosmos. You're not doing any good. The cosmos are going after him. And so they introduced this idea of an expansion here beyond what I think even the Jews were thinking in regards to the Christ here. And then on the heels of saying that, John tells us that now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Uh, The implication is they told Jesus, there are some Greeks who want to see you. And Jesus answers them and says, listen very carefully, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to the life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus goes on to talk more specifically about his hour, which we'll cover tonight. But let's pray. Uh, Brother Travis, would you mind getting me a little cup of water? My throat is dry as it can be, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose my voice, so we may be praying this morning. So. <clears throat> but let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this day. We are thankful for the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ. Lord, I'm particularly thankful for the privilege of opening this Bible in front of me and to be able to look down at the words and to understand that it is literally you speaking to us. And so, Father, since it is your word and, and since uh, you are the divine author of it, Father, I pray this morning that you would manifest yourself as the divine revealer of it to us this morning. I've done my study, Father, and I've done my consideration, but these in the end are only the, the, the efforts of a man. But, Father, by your spirit, you can bring these things to bear upon us in ways that will have an effect ultimately unto your glory. So we pray that that would be the case this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> You'll have to forgive my voice. This is a, I think this is the latter stages of COVID. Now I got that little call where it's tickling. Uh, but you, you pray for me as I share this morning. One of the things that was, uh, thank you, brother. Yes, sir. One of the things that was so striking to me again regarding uh, these passages are the idea of seeing. And if I might make application for that, I couldn't help but thinking of Paul's words that now, this is after post-cross, now we see through a mirror or a, or a glass darkly. And so we still have some, uh, we still have some issues in regards to our, the clarity of our seeing now. And it, and it affected me to think that there's a great celebration here and there's a dynamic happening because what they are going to proclaim and what they recognize is a true reality. I was listening to someone on this text and they said that early in Jesus' ministry when he performed miracles, uh, the, people, the people came to him and, and would take him away and crown him king then, but he was having none of that. He moved away from that. In fact, he went and hid himself because his time had not yet come. But in this passage, it's different. In fact, he receives, he receives the adoration. It's almost as if he's saying, you are correct. I am your king. Everything has been happening. The religious leaders are growing in their aggression and hostility towards Jesus. And at the same time, many are coming to believe and the crowds are growing. And there's a real threat uh, to, to their religious stability, as it were. And I think among the religious leaders, there was an authentic fear that if this kept continuing to stir, particularly if they held him as a king, then Caesar would come down upon them and, and it might have serious implications for the nation of Israel. But all this is kind of coming to a climax. 
Everybody's there. Those who are believed, those who have been following Jesus, Lazarus has been raised. Everyone is excited. We're approaching the Passover. So there's a natural inclination to be anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And there's all sorts of fervor building in the hearts of the people. And so Jesus in verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that he was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, which, which in Hebrew means please save or God saves or save us. And so they're shouting, as it were, at the approach and the coming into town of Jesus, save us. Save us, oh God, save us. So that's the introduction. And then they follow up on this passage from Psalm 118. But blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So that's, a, that's quite a threatening thing to say. In fact, in another gospel, they insist upon Jesus. They insist to him that you need to silence these people. Because you're going to get some big trouble started when they're hailing you as king, especially in the years of Roman centurions who are going to send word back to Caesar. You better silence these people because we're treading on thin ice here. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these remain silenced, the rocks will cry out. These, this must unfold in the way that is unfolding. Now, I'm not sure that they understood when they cited from Psalm 118 the, the fullness of what this king would be, but they certainly seem to be recognizing or relating Jesus to the prophecies of Psalm 118. And it always amazes me in the narratives where they cite the Old Testament passages that they don't seem to be remembering another part of that passage, one in which in that particular Psalm 118 says, this is the stone that the builders rejected. And so because they leave that one off and exalt this one, they are hailing him as a king, but it suggests to me that they're not seeing clearly even Psalm 118 or the events that were unfolding before their very eyes. And to me, if I might say here, there's a reminder of that to, to not become too presumptuous in regards to the clarity of our own sight today. We see through a glass darkly or dimly. We, we have a foggy vision even unto this day. And so there ought to at least produce in us a bit of humility. There are some things that are very clear to me, but there are other things that I am less dogmatic about because my vision is not clear. Not because they're obscure in the scripture, but because my vision is the issue. And I think it was the issue for these Jews as well. In fact, I'm always struck during the Easter season and when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, I'm always struck by the juxtaposition of these people in exuberance and celebration, hailing the entrance of their king, their Messiah, only a week later calling for his crucifixion. I mean, I'm just stunned by that. I never will forget reading, a, a, I think maybe hearing a, an exposition by Charles Swindoll, but he was talking about where they had held Barabbas uh, would, have been, would, would have been in earshot of the court in which they had Jesus appearing before them. And when Pilate polled the crowds and he said, uh, whom would you have me release unto you? 
and gave them a choice between Jesus and Barabbas, that from that distance, uh, all Barabbas may have heard was son of a father, but all he might have heard was give us Barabbas or give us Barabbas. And in his understanding, he might have understood that to mean that we want to crucify Barabbas. And so when the guards come to retrieve Barabbas, he's expecting to be crucified, but rather than being crucified, he is set free and informed that they have chosen to kill another, Jesus. And to me, it just, it just reeks here of a blurred vision. They got a lot of things right, and what they got right, Jesus confirms. But Jesus knows all the while that they have no idea, they have no full vision of the means by which I will assume this kingship. And so let them celebrate. In fact, if they don't, the rocks will cry out. They must celebrate. They must fulfill this prophecy. And I think it's interesting here, as they do that, he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In John's gospel here, it says here in verse 14 that Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on the donkey's colt. And he goes on to tell us that the disciples did these things for him, apparently not understanding in the moment what they were doing. And see, to, to enter a kingdom riding upon a donkey was to enter a kingdom in a peaceful way, in a peaceful manner. Uh, there, were, there were analogies or illustrations for a conquering king was usually upon the back of a war horse. He rode in as a conqueror, leading captives captive. But Jesus, it says here, in light of what they were saying, he looks around and he finds a donkey and he enters into the city upon the back of a donkey, which has a different connotation in very many ways. It should have alerted them that there's something different. Maybe we ought to go to Zechariah and read the prophecy there. And maybe we ought to read all of the prophecy of Psalm 118. And then perhaps we would have a clearer, fuller vision of what's taking place here. But they don't do that. They don't do that. And even the Pharisees and the religious leaders are going to weigh in here because as they are doing these things, verse 17, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead and continued, they were continuing to testify about him, the, the works that they had seen him do. And so now you have a testimony of the workings of Christ, a, a testimony of the people hailing him as the Messiah, and the testimony of Jesus having uh, chosen the donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy there. You have all of these witnesses to who this is, but nobody seems to have a clear, full vision of it. Because no one here seems to be anticipating what Jesus is about to expose them to. In fact, I think that's why many were crying crucify later on. Because they could not imagine this could indeed be the Messiah if he has in fact been beaten and taken into custody by the Romans. Our Messiah is a conquering king. He can't be suffering. They can't see. They can't see. So verse 19, the Pharisees themselves bear witness to what's happening here more, I think, than they even understand because they say to one another, you see, you're not doing any good. I, I love it that they say to one another, they must have convened another council. 
They must have said, our strategy is not working. We're not doing enough. These people are coming to him in mass. They are gathering and they are hailing him openly as the fulfillment of Psalm 118, which they all knew. They are saying, this is the Messiah come to Israel. If you don't stop this, the whole cosmos is going to go after him. They didn't know how right they were. And there is a leap here because primarily this is the Jewish Messiah. The real danger here was that they were hailing him to be the Messiah within the earshot of the Roman occupiers, and that could cause real trouble. So, But the Pharisees in their discussion don't narrow it down to the Jews. They say, you're not doing any good. The whole cosmos is moving towards this man. And that's a far, that's a far greater claim as it were, than that he is being held by the Jews as their Messiah. It gives us an indication that there's something exceedingly more to this man than just his Messiahship of the people of Israel, more than just their king, because that's what they say about him. It's the king of Israel. And now they say the whole world, the whole cosmos is going after him. And on the heels of that, interestingly, John in his narrative picks up this experience, but he says, verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now, the Greeks are outside of the people of Jews. These may have been proselyte to Judaism, uh, but they were Greek in their origin, in their nationalities. This is the cosmos. This is the world. They've hailed him as the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish King, and they've, they've cited the prophecies, understanding, I think, the prophecies, in, at, at least at a superficial level. They've identified him. The Pharisees certainly know what they're saying. Jesus selects a donkey and comes into the, into the city, as it were, in fulfillment of Zechariah 19. So far, all this is rather provincial in regards to Jewish, but then the Pharisees introduce something more when they say the world's gone after him. And what do we see right on the heels of that statement? Here comes the Greeks. Here comes the Greeks. It says they were going up to worship at the feast. Is why I think maybe they were converse to Judaism. or per, It's possible that they could not be included among those who were worshiping. They come up to be among those who were worshiping at the feast. Likely, I think they were probably converse to Judaism. But these Greeks, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. That's what's rang in my heart all week long, because in a very real way, that's what the Jews are doing. We wish to see Jesus. And Jesus is manifesting himself in, uh, through his works, and they've concluded at this point, we, we are seeing Jesus. We do see him. We know who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 118. We see Jesus. And the Pharisees obviously are seeing something about Jesus that alarms them. So everybody's seeing Jesus. And here comes the Greeks and they say, we want to see him. We want to see Jesus. 
You know, they obviously had heard about the works and, and the raising of Lazarus, and, and surely as they were mingling with the people, they were hearing all sorts of proclamations. Perhaps they were in earshot of the proclamations that Jesus is the king coming to them and so forth, and the hosannas. And so their, their interest is piqued, and they say, we want to see Jesus. We want to be like the, the Jews. We want to be like the Pharisees. We want to be like everybody involved here. We want to lay our eyes and behold and see Jesus. And so Philip came and told Andrew about this. And Andrew and Philip, they both got together and came to the Lord. And as I said there, I think they came to him and said, Lord, there are Greeks who desire to see you. And the anticipation that I have in reading in the normal conversation of things here is that Jesus would have said, where are they? Certainly welcome. He said of the children, hinder them not. Let them come to me. And here they say, there's some Greeks, those in the world, Jesus knowing the, the world scope of his ministry, as it were, this would have been a wonderful opportunity for Jesus to establish that indeed the Gentiles will be included in this kingdom. He had all sorts of opportunities here to expand their understanding of him, but he doesn't speak to the issue of their wanting to see him at least superficially. He doesn't say, well, of course, bring them to me. I'd like to actually talk to the Greeks. Doesn't say that at all. But rather he says something I think that may have struck them as unusual. And it certainly does us in the, in the context. But Jesus answers them Andrew and Philip, who are informing him of a Greek request to see him, he informs them and says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I, I want to be polite to Jesus, but I'm, I'm, I'm pausing a minute, and when he finishes there, I insert in between the next two sentences, I said, well, that's, that's extraordinary, Jesus, but what about the Greeks who want to see you? But Jesus maybe doesn't pause or he goes right on, but he says to them as if they were thinking in their head, well, why is he saying that in regards to the request that we've made known to him? And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. So he just simply lays out this principle. Here's my answer to the Greeks' request to see me. My hour is here. <laughs> I, I love this. That's my answer. You want to see me? Then what I'm about to do is absolutely necessary for that to come to pass. Not only for you Greeks, but for those Jews who are crying Hosanna and don't know the fullness of what they're speaking about. And for those Pharisees who are worried about the cosmos coming to me and have no clue that that's exactly what I'm drawing to me. But that's all centered around and hinged upon this hour. So I'm not particularly interested in seeing the Greeks and the Greeks seeing me now. I'm interested and have come to accomplish the, the, the means by which they will be able to see me and to behold me. And that's the issue. That's the issue. Over and over in Scripture, it talks about our blindness. In our spiritual blindness, in our fallenness. 2 Corinthians 4, some of my favorite passages of Scripture. 
Our eyes have been blinded to something. In fact, the God of this world has blinded our eyes or the understanding. And when we look at Jesus, we see Jesus with our fleshly eyes, but we've been blinded to a seeing that understands the glory of Jesus. Blind to it. And so long as we are still in the old flesh, as long as we still have this old man to be putting to death every day, then it has an effect on the clarity of our understanding, our seeing with understanding even to this day. And Jesus, I think, is saying to us, even in this passage, clarity and the ability to see itself is rooted in this hour. What hour is that? The hour that's just ahead of him. In fact, he gives a little description of what's going to take place in that hour. And that is he gives this analogy of wheat. A single grain of wheat. That's small, by the way. We might equate it to a single grain of corn on an ear of corn. Well, if that doesn't fall off and get put into the ground and and through the decay process germinate, it won't produce anything. If you don't put it into the ground, if it doesn't fall into the ground, if you just lay it on a counter somewhere and let it dry out, it's just going to dry out and blow away with the wind. It will have no fruitfulness whatsoever unless it is planted in the ground. And I think Jesus is saying that to say this is descriptive of the hour that is necessary for the Greeks to see me. And by the way, the Jews and by the way, the religious leaders. Nobody is going to see me unless this hour comes. And the reason this hour must come is because there can be no fruit produced unless I go into the ground, that I die. And he says in that passage at the end there, if it remains alone, but if it dies, if this grain of wheat dies, then it bears much fruit. Now that's stunning in and of itself. And it says a lot to me because it, de- it defines for me the reality of my blindness to the glories of Christ in the flesh. And no matter if I see His works and I marvel at His works, no matter if I learn the doctrines and marvel at the doctrines, apart from this hour, I cannot see that clearly. You remember what he says to Nicodemus early in John in chapter 3 when he describes to him about a man must be born again before he can see the kingdom and even goes on to say, and obviously to enter that kingdom, he must be born again. And Nicodemus is blown away by this. This is completely baffling to him. And Jesus says something to him. Are you, and uses the definite article here, are you the teacher of Israel? And don't understand these things. You can't see, Nicodemus. You can't see. I'm speaking truth to you. And had had you clear vision, you would understand exactly what I mean by a man must be born again. But you can't see. It's like the spirit is like the wind, as it were. It comes and you don't know where it's coming from and it goes away and you don't know where it's going. And so it is with those who are born again. The spirit brings that about. But Nicodemus, you can't see that. You can't see it at all. In fact, you, if you, you would clearly say that of all men, Nicodemus can see. That's what I think he means by, you're the teacher of Israel. If there was ever a seeing man in all of Israel, Nicodemus, you're it. You're one of them. 
and you don't understand these things? What's the problem, Nicodemus? The problem is Nicodemus hasn't experienced a new birth, and because of that, Nicodemus can't see. And our problem before we came to know Jesus Christ is the same. We couldn't see. And even after we've come to know Jesus Christ, I don't think we see as clearly as we will see someday, ultimately, because I think in this world we're looking through a glass darkly. There are things that I see very clearly and I embrace and hold fast to. But there are other things that are less clear to me, not because they're not clear in the Scriptures, but because the old man's vision, the old man's eyes are still in operation, which, by the way, must be crucified. I was sharing with the young people today. Take up your cross and follow me. If you don't do that, you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me without an instrument to be putting to death the old man because the old man can't see. Can't see. Only the new man can see. And so Jesus Gives them this analogy here. I wondered when I was reading this passage if, if Philip and Andrew here at some point got the message. In other words, or are they still just baffled in this? Well, that's all very intriguing, Jesus. And we'd like to have a conversation about this later, but they're waiting outside. They want to see you. I mean, and Jesus never says, I don't want to see them. So, so they're hanging there. We've got some Greeks that they have probably led from wherever they were saying, well, yeah, we're the disciples. We're among his closest inner circle. We'll take you and see Jesus. And now they brought him to see Jesus, and Jesus seems to be expressing no interest whatsoever in seeing them. Why? Because they won't see him. They won't see him. Let me just insert here for a minute. This is why... My heart is burdened sometimes in the way that we communicate the gospel. Because there's this assumption that if we give them the facts, which we should, by the way, but if we give them the facts, we will give them, give them to them in such a quantity and in such a profound measure that they will see and believe. But they can't see. Blind men can't see. In fact... I would suggest that when we do that, if there's not an act of the Holy Spirit to bring about the new birth, we have essentially done what Jesus done to the man born blind. We have, by the speaking the truth of the Word of God, put clay over their eyes, and the response is this, they have become doubly blind. And so, Jesus shows no interest in visiting personally with the Greeks at this point. But Jesus is laying down something critically important to the Greeks and everyone else's ability to truly see Jesus. And then I think he, in verse 25, he shifts this now, not just to the Greek, but to everyone. And he gives this idea about following his analogy here about the grain of wheat. But he says here, listen to this carefully. I was touching on this with the kids from another passage in, John, in Luke this morning. But he who loves his life loses it. What a strange paradox. Uh, on the surface, I would say, well, I love my life. I, I don't want to die. In fact, I don't want to go to the doctor and get a bad report because what's at stake there is my life, and I don't want to lose it. I love it. I don't want to lose my life. And Jesus, I think, says something that would be exceedingly confusing and stunning to them, but he says to them, on the heels of having said, unless the kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot reproduce itself. 
on the heels of that, he says to them, he who loves his life loses it. I think he means here by this life is the life of this world, the blinded life, the life that does, has not been made able to see, the life that we have surrounded ourselves, the life upon which we sit in the throne, the life where we are self-directed, self-guided, self-sufficient, and self projected. We are the authority in our own lives. This individualistic, no need for anything outside of ourselves. If you love that, you will lose it. If you love that, you will lose it. He says, he who loves his life loses it. And we had some discussion with the kids this morning about this, but, and he who, here's the contrast, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. He who hates his life in this world. If, you, if you've been given life and you, and you look back and you experience the old man creeping back into your thinking and you look at him, you hate him. You hate him. The old man creeping up in me disgusts me. And he's, a, he's an ominous feeling as it were in my own life because all that is good as Paul says in Romans 7 all the good that I want to do I find that with his presence I'm not able to do it in fact the very thing I want to do I wind up not doing and the thing I don't want to do that's what I find myself doing what is the source of that him that's why I hate him that's the life he means if you don't hate that life in this world you will, not inherit, you will not inherit life eternal. Why? Because you're holding to that life. And that life can't see. And that life, that, that life is not responsive, as it were, to the spiritual things of God. It is incapable of seeing. It is, it is as blind to the glory of God as these Pharisees are who are wanting to take the very life of Jesus. And that, that has to die. You have to die to that. It's an ongoing process. It's sanctification in the Christian life. But you are to be putting death to sin. I, I think uh, John Owen said, you are either putting death to sin or, de or sin is putting you to death. I mean, you can't escape dealing with that. It creeps up and crops up in all of our lives. And you have to be constantly crucifying that old man. You have to recognize him, hate him, and long and desire for the fullness of life we have in Christ. That's the process by which you inherit eternal life. Without that, there is no inheritance of eternal life. Why? Because you don't even see it. Because that old man doesn't see at all. Not just not clearly, he doesn't see at all. So that's Jesus demonstrating the principle that he's given in verse 24. Now verse 26 is where it really comes home in regards to those who would come to Jesus, those who would see Jesus. Because he says to them upon this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now listen closely. And where I am... There my servant will be also. Uh, where am I? <laughs> I mean, if you ask that, anyone who wishes to follow me, serve me, must follow me, that where I am, that seems present tense, not future tense. He's going to be somewhere, certainly in the future, but that seems to be present tense. If you don't follow me, if you want to serve me, then you must follow me so that you might be where I am. Where am I? He just said... 
My hour has come. And what hour was that? It was the hour in which he was laying down, as it were, sacrificing his life. If anyone follows me, they must be where I am. They must follow me to where I am. Where is that? The willingness to lay down the life. The willingness to be, be that kernel that falls into the ground and produces eternal life, as it were. Anyone who follows me, who, who would serve me, must be willing to follow me to where I am. And where am I? I'm right at the threshold of laying down my very life, of putting to death, as it were, this flesh, as it were, on our behalf. And if you want to serve him, you've got to follow him to that place as well. That's what I was sharing with the children from Luke this morning. I mean, Jesus says something extraordinary. Any man who doesn't hate Father and mother and wife and, and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, cannot. That's conclusive. It's an impossibility for that man to be my disciple. It's impossible for him to follow me because he has everything exalted above me. And if I'm not having that exalted place, he will not abandon any of these. Or he will, not pre he will prefer each of these above me. And on that basis, he cannot follow me. Why? Because following me takes you to this hour of crucifixion. And if there's a priority other than Jesus Christ, you won't go there. It's your natural fleshly inclination to avoid death. And if someone says to you, here's a cross, put yourself upon it and die. You're, you're repulsed by that in your flesh. And if there's anything higher of value in your life than Jesus Christ, you will not go upon that cross. And the old man will grow stronger and stronger and stronger in your life. And Jesus says the same as such here. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. There is, there is a, trans, a, a trajectory of this. If you're there where he is and your hour has come and the flesh is crucified, I think it's a call to be joined with Christ in his own crucifixion. And if you're there with him at the hour of his death, then you're united with him in his death and raised with him in new life. That's where he's going. And if you would follow him and serve him, that's, that's the call in your life and that's also the destination of your life as well. We will be with Christ who serve him. Here's something to think about. Do you see that? Do you see? I mean, that's what this passage is about. If you, if you listen to me and you say, I don't, I don't see that at all. That's why his hour was coming. Because if he doesn't go to this hour, you don't ever see and I don't ever see. And even as he goes to that hour, he, our, we still view the, this reality through a glass dimly. And the process of sanctification is the process whereby he is opening and clarify, clarifying our vision as we go so that we might behold him. You hear me quoted all the time, 1 John 3, 1 and 2. We don't know yet what we shall be, but we know this. When we see him, we shall be like him. See. When we see him, we shall be like him. I've always took from that that seeing Christ is the catalyst to our being transformed to the image of Christ. So the early Christian goal of mine was to see him more clearly. But there's something in the way and it's called the old man. 
And Jesus gives me a cross, in fact, unites me to him upon a cross as the instrument by which I can continually be putting him to death so that I might see. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. The Greeks want to see me, but they don't understand yet what seeing me looks like. And they'll never understand that unless I go to this hour. In fact, just jump ahead in verse 27. He says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is the purpose I came into this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Notice he comes back. It almost seems like he's saying the same thing. But I think he's pressing this forward as well. But he says, He must follow me, the servant, one who serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. He'll come to the point of his dying. But if anyone serves me and comes to that hour and goes through that hour in union with Christ, then he says of that, the Father will honor him. Because of his union with Christ. In fact, I don't think you can die on your own. You have to die united to Christ so that the old man can be crucified and a new man raised up. And united to Christ, the Father will honor you. That's that's where this is going. I told someone this week that was talking about labor and toil. And thinking in terms of physical exhaustion in serving the Lord and serving God's church. And I just reminded them, grow not weary in well-doing. Don't grow weary. In fact, I think if you're feeling that physical exhaustion, there I'm, I'm not saying this absolutely, there are circumstances where we do need to withdraw and physically take some rest. But if you're ministering and serving out of the strength that the flesh provides, you will soon find yourself burnt out. I hear preachers saying that all the time. I, Thank God for His mercy, but I've never felt burned out. In fact, I've always understood my problem is I'm a smoldering, I'm a smoldering candle. My problem is not that I'm burned out. My problem is that I ain't burning hot enough. I'm just smoldering sometimes. And, I, and that's when you pray and your heart's desires, Lord, will you fan the flame and heat this thing up? I'm getting weary because I'm smoldering and I'm not providing any heat or light for anyone, even including myself. Jesus says and promises us that the one who serves me and follows me and finds himself where I am him with the Father honor. There's a day which we will hear as those who faithfully serve in union with Christ for the glory of Christ. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest in the kingdom of the Lord. So here's the question this morning on my heart. Can you see? There's likely someone in this sanctuary who can't see at all. But yet, they may be like the Pharisees and they think because they know the Bible and they come to church regularly, they may, they may be like the Pharisees and says, well, we can see. I can see just fine. And to you, Jesus would say, if you didn't say that, you could be made to see. But since you say it that way, you are blind. You've been rendered blind. And there are others who are born like the blind man. They just find that they don't see at all. They don't see anything at all. And the Word of God comes to them. And there's a, there's a dilemma there because the Word of God can produce double blindness as manifested in the life of the religious leaders or in obedience it can produce sight. 
Jesus, I said this earlier on that text, but it strikes me that Jesus does, these, does this method. He didn't have to do any of that. He could have simply said, see. But he doesn't do that. He spits and takes saliva and he dips it in the sand and he makes him a little paste of mud and he covers his eyes. And, and we're not told that anybody helped him at all to the pool of Siloam. But he tells him after not curing his blindness, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the man gets up at the word of Christ, still blind, and obeys Christ in that blindness. And having obeyed Christ and fulfilled that obedience to the full, when he comes up out of the water of Siloam, he can see. He wasn't running around telling everybody born from, blind from birth. I can see. I know it looks like I can't, but really I can. They would have thought he was crazy. No, you can't. You've been born blind since you were born. They had to carry you here so you can beg alms of the people who are coming by. Every evidence indicates that you were blind. How can you say, I see? But that's exactly what the religious leaders were doing. Every indication in regards to their dealing with Jesus indicated their blindness. Yet they said, we can see. And I think for all of them and for you and I here in this sanctuary today, Jesus says that in order that they might see, I will go to my hour. And I will do in that hour what is necessary and needful to, to provide for sight for the people that they may behold me in my glory. If you're a believer today and you've gotten a glimpse of that glory, give credit to Jesus who went to his hour. Because if that doesn't happen, you don't see him. You don't see him and you certainly don't treasure him. And if you don't treasure him, then you're still treasuring your own life. And to do that is to lose it. And that's, that's our invitation today. Stand with me this morning. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the, the sight I do have and confess and acknowledge the obscurity that remains. Lord, it would seem to me the height of arrogance for any of us to claim that we see fully now. But Father, we trust in you and we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to provide for an increasingly clear view of the glory of Christ until that day when we see him having put off this flesh and the sight of that alone will be perfect vision in that moment. Lord, we as Christians anticipate that glorious day. And Father, I pray that by your spirit, that may be the experience of some in this room this morning. Lord, we thank you for the spiritual miracle and reality of the new birth. We have not yet put off this body of sin. And Lord, we can relate to Paul very often when we say, oh, this wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from this body of sin. But he goes right on afterwards to give praise to you and for the glory of Christ. So as we have these moments of invitation, Father, I pray that by your spirit and your word, your truth, that you would speak into our hearts and call into existence the light that will help us to see Christ for who he is. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen.